0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. The 118th Congress has convened here in the nation's capital, and while overt Christian nationalists did poorly overall in the midterm elections, plenty of their agenda seems to have made it to the Hill. Between that and the right-leaning Supreme Court's full docket, there's a lot to consider. Christian nationalism expert and best-selling author Catherine Stewart will be back with us to share her insights. One of the requirements for making positive change is understanding the starting point. That's one of the gifts visionary Diana Butler Bass offers to so much of her writing. She gets it right about where we are and imagines the best direction for the future, whether we're talking about organized religion or our politics or our culture. That's why I am really looking forward to getting her thoughts about the moment we're all living through today when she joins me later on this week's program. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Journalist and best-selling author Catherine Stewart is an expert on Christian nationalism. She's the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism and has also published a book about radical conservative takeovers targeting our public education system. With the January 6th anniversary behind us and a new congressional session underway, it's great to have her back with us on State of Belief. Thanks for being here. It's
1: my pleasure. I'm so happy to speak to you today.
0: So, Most recently, I read your very sobering piece in The New Republic called The Rise of Spirit Warriors on the Christian Right. And I wonder if we can dive into that. I'll start by just offering this one little snippet that really just jumped out at me, which is the idea that the American political realm is a place of spiritual warfare in a literal not metaphorical sense, is one of the defining elements of the new forms of highly politicized religion that are surging across the country. Unpack that for us a little bit.
1: Sure. Well, let's pull back for a minute. Um, American religion is never been a static thing. It's always evolving. But the evolution is frankly divided. I think we spend a lot of time hearing about the secularization trend. We hear about the rise of the so-called nuns. But I spend a lot of my time looking at what's happening on the other side, looking at what's happening to uh, people who are committed to religion. And within that group, there is a substantial shift. And um, Christianity, as we know, is incredibly diverse. But there has been a shift um, among some sectors of Christianity in in favor of – uh, increased militancy and increased support for authoritarianism. Um, and uh, so, for instance, one of these movements, uh, it's called the New Apostolic Reformation, which emerged out of Pentecostalism and neo-charismatic offshoots, is um, very theocratic. It says that um, Christians of a certain type should dominate all sectors of society, including government, education, um, and, and things like that. And um, but it, it's not limited to um, to the neo-charismatic offshoots or um, or groups like that or the sort of apostolic and prophetic types of religion. It shows up among some reactionary Catholics, some right-wing Presbyterians or Baptists, or non-denominational Christians, and others. So while secularization is going on, the religious sort of rump, as it were, the folks who are on the sort of more or reactionary side of religion, are becoming more radical. And it's sort of like, um, I would say, um, a style or a language, this kind of shared language, this idea that uh, American political scene is a a place of spiritual warfare in a literal and not uh, metaphorical sense.
0: Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, it's also, it's a very sort of, you know, sense of everything being deemed in these very sort of binary spiritual terms of, of good and evil, demonic and, and, and you know, angelic or whatever. And, and it, it's very hard to imagine ultimately a strong functioning democracy when people are using those kind of terms to describe the other side today. Uh, this is we're, we're recording this on um, the first, and at this very minute, there is a there is a gathering of people at the Bible Museum where people are like they're it's, they're calling for a repentance of America and that you know everything we're doing is wrong and that there's you know it, you you're in these in these circles and you're kind of wondering, well, how do we have a conversation about going forward together when we've already established that you are, you know, you, you have deemed yourself the angels of light and, you know, people perhaps like me as like demonic forces. It's very hard to imagine a functioning democracy like that.
1: Yeah. It's othering. It's about sort of dividing between the us and the them, the, Uh, pure versus the impure, and it's sort of saying who gets to properly belong in the nation and who doesn't, and we're frankly seeing the radical right become closer to or part of the political mainstream in America, and many conservatives are pushing the idea that there are sort of real Americans who are people who worship like them or belong to certain approved religious backgrounds and have certain approved political views, and those who are not. It's a kind of exclusionary
0: nationalism. Yeah. I mean this so, so much of your work right now um is f- focusing on this term Christian nationalism. And you know, we we should probably just take a minute because there's lots of different definitions of that, but but how you are seeing uh, Christian nationalism also seems to be evolving and changing. I mean it's not a static idea. How do you see Christian nationalism today the 1st of February 2023
1: well christian nationalism uh is not a religion right it's it's not um it's not a it's not christianity it's not the whole of christianity i think of it as um as involving two things number one it's an ideology and number two it's a political movement an organized quest for power so the ideology says that only um uh it's, it's sort of, again, about who gets to belong in the nation and who doesn't. It says the I you know, promotes the idea that America is founded as a Christian nation, according to a very particular definition of Christianity, and says that um, all of our problems stem from uh, our abandoning the supposed uh, conservative Christian heritage of our founding. But this ideology is really a tool for, a leadership-driven political um, machine that turns that sort of deep mythology into political power, and the uh, machine, machinery of the movement is is very dense. It's very it's organization-driven, leadership-driven, and the strength of the movement is in that dense organizational infrastructure.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point that this is, you know. It, it, this uh, has the has the appearance of being a grassroots movement, of people kind of wait, say, you know, all I want is to be Christian in America. Is that so wrong? But really, one of your major points is that this is actually coming from a very, cons- you know, centralized and concerted effort around power that is using um, convincing messaging. To a certain part of the population and the vehicles, the networks, in order to spread this um, this idea of Christian nationalism and and specifically this idea that there are some people who have a privileged status and who truly belong and everyone else is here kind of, you know, if they're lucky— um, by the indulgence of this true American minority, um, so I think it's just really important what you said is that that this is not a, an, actually a grassroots movement, but it it look it can look like that, but there's a very particular power grab and like organizational you know um, efforts. I mean, I wonder if we could just focus in for a second on a current manifestation located in the the sunshine state of Florida, which I think is just really a, it's almost um, a a textbook case of what's happening that we're seeing. That's absolutely true. When you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis and how
1: he's um, using the kind of language of authoritarianism and the kind of doing these sort of authoritarian uh, actions, taking aim at public education, trying to cancel or censor uh, uh, the teaching of legitimate history, um, the recognition uh, of um, LGBT rights or same-sex marriage and things like that, um, it, you see that this is what a lot of authoritarians do. It's it's a classic authoritarian move. Um, uh, anxiety about gender, first of all, is like rocket fuel to this movement, and right-wing authoritarians always run these identity campaigns, there is a a we that are are the righteous. Uh, there is a they that we hate, and religion often plays um, uh, a, a role in in distinguishing between the two. When you look yeah. at uh, leaders like uh, Maloney in Italy, if you look at Erdogan in Turkey, if you look at Vladimir Putin in Russia. When these leaders are binding themselves very tightly to uh, reactionary religious figures in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism. It's certainly not uh, uh, limited to the Christian faith. It happens across uh, all faiths uh, around the world. But um, you know, religious nationalism is is uh, is hostile to pluralism the principles of uh, pluralism and equality that represent the best of the American promise and we're seeing it um in the sort of broad Republican attack on voting rights and on the legitimacy of elections this is what authoritarian governments they do they 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 reject the consequences of elections whose consequence you know that they if they don't like the outcome and um you know, we see uh, Ron DeSantis playing right into this, but you know what's really interesting about Ron DeSantis, okay? So I attended the um, last year's um, National Pro-Life Summit. So a lot, I've been researching this movement for 15 years. And a lot of the ways that I do my research is I go to right-wing conferences and strategy gatherings and, um, and, and summits because I feel like you don't really know what this movement is doing until you're in those rooms and hearing them talk to one another, not just when they're, you know, invited on, you know, onto CNN, where they say something, you know, nice and mild, that makes them sound very reasonable. But When we hear what they're t- saying to one another and their strategy. And so anyway, at the National Pro-Life Summit I attended, Kirsten Hawkins, who's the head of a very powerful anti-abortion organization called Students for Life of America. She's also a member of the, by the way, the Council for National Policy. She's has a relationship uh, professional, you know, uh, collaborates with Leonard Leo. They are, I mean, she's like very, uh, you know, really one of the uh, elite, a movement leader. So she she was referring to Ron DeSantis and I don't have the quote in front of me, but she talked about the money and, and manpower that her organization and the organizations they collaborate with are going to bring to bear if leaders like Ron DeSantis, and she specifically mentioned Florida, don't do what they want. And sure enough, a few weeks later, uh, Ron DeSantis endorsed, I believe it was a 15-week abortion ban or something like that. But if we want to know one of the reasons why the Republican Party has gone so far to the right is because this movement turns out, it has the ability to turn out a very substantial part of the Republican vote. They are the most they turn out the most reliable portion of the Republican vote. And because of gerrymandered districts, a lot of Republicans are never gonna run against a Democrat. So they can only really get the support of this movement by running as far right as they can by endorsing mm-hmm. what exactly what the movement wants them to do. And we've seen this happening, uh, certainly in Florida and beyond
0: it's really it it is it's shocking what's happening with the um with the abortion ban as well as the censorship in school and the um you know not just with lgbtq uh material but also now um the fight over black history Mm-hmm. Um, vaccines, I mean, all of this stuff is feels very kind of almost boilerplate at this point. It's like, this is the playbook. And you know, I I, I feel for the people in Florida because I think many of them are just going, what is happening? to our state you know and what is happening is a very well organized group has come in and figured out how the levers of power and have have you know uh, used them effectively so i you know i'm actually speaking as i believe you are at this uh, in naples florida uh, in a couple weeks and you know it's a group that's really trying to figure out what are we what do we do now um i think a lot of people in florida feel like you know you know more progressive or democrats are are saying like you you all think this is our problem this isn't just our problem this is this is a national problem so i mean how does how does the censorship of 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 information play into this broader sort of Christian nationalism movement? Like, what is it? Why is that part of why is that one of the first things they organize around is school boards and censorship of dangerous information?
1: I think there are two factors at work here. The first is it's a kind of power move. It's saying I do it because I can. It's like a kind Mm -hmm. of authoritarian move. This is a movement that, um, you know, they referred to Trump uh, as a as a king, not, you know, not as a president, but as a king, King Cyrus. They compared him to King Cyrus or King David. They said he was God's choice. You know, God's guy. That's how he was referred to, uh, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact His will. Here's the thing about kings: they're not kings of democracies. They are a law. They don't have to obey the rules. They are a law unto themselves, and. I think that Trump appealed to many of this, uh, members of this movement and many of the leaders, because he represented the authoritarian impulses of so many of his supporters and so many of those leaders. So DeSantis is behaving like an authoritarian. He's trying to, obviously, trying to cut into um, some of Trump's support. Uh, To be honest, I think a lot of the leaders would prefer DeSantis because they, They're being assured by all of the things that, you know, Ron DeSantis is showing them. I'm going to do everything Trump did, but I'm going to do it better because I'm smarter and I'm less chaotic. And uh, I don't have all the sort of baggage, you know, the mob, whatever. Whatever it is,
0: yeah. <laughs> where to start? Are, are you seeing that? Are you seeing that shift? Are you you actually seeing some? I mean, I, I I'm not I'm not I'm in the about, I'm, I'm seeing, not in the rooms. I'm seeing it among
1: are, some leaders. Um, I'm uh-huh. seeing others uh, who are still super pro uh, Trump and but what i'm seeing is a bit of panic like a lot of them are really trying to thread the needle i was uh, somebody i was following the other day on twitter said you know we'd like to see a second trump turn followed by two desantis terms everyone i talk to is in agreement well i'm sure uh-huh. that's not entirely true but they know <laughs> you know as i've heard over and over at these gatherings that i attend there is no victory without unity and they know that unless they all get in line at the end of the day they're going to lose elections so badly they will be <laughs> hard to steal um and uh you know um yeah so yeah, yeah. I,
0: well it, it's interesting once you annoy a king it's hard to say well you know like let's move on to the next king i mean you can i guess like it, it, the king is there <laughs> can be deposed uh you know i mean it's not an you know but it is it, it it's interesting like king for a season, uh, maybe is what, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a very odd um, thing. You, you know, in the last, in the midterms, there was a narrative that Christian nationalists did not do as well as, as was feared. Um, and, you know, many of us kind of went, okay. And, you know, Christian nationalists goes along with election deniers. And some of the people who are the most anti-democratic or overtly did not fare too well. I'm curious, like, how do you read that? Uh, do you breathe a sigh of relief, or are you? Mm, I, I I'm think not sure. we dodged a bullet,
1: but it grazed our cheek. I mean, uh, some folks like Mastriano did not win their elections in Carrie Lake. Others handily won their elections. I think about uh, Vance. I think about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think about DeSantis. So, um, you know. uh, uh so I don't think that uh, you know. I think breathing a sigh of relief is is certainly premature.
0: Right. One of the things that just puzzles me is there, a, a reading of history that really ignores a lot of just. I hate to say facts, but it is facts. Like uh, my sense is, if uh, if the founding fathers. Wanted this to be a Christian nation. That was the most logical thing for them to do. Was just to make a Protestant nation. You know, what I mean, because that was the model that everyone used. Um, or at least coming from Europe, that was the model. And so, like, it, I'm just curious. How, and and then you read like George Washington's letter um, to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, there's just so says, many
1: texts. You can read Madison. You can read you, Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about it is our our founders. You know, proudly and self-consciously created the world's first secular republic and they did so very self-consciously and they told us they were doing as they were doing it and um but this history and of course they were from diverse uh uh faith backgrounds some were many of them were deists which was considered a kind of heresy in their time it was a you know they sort of endorsed a kind of natural order of things, which was not like sort of theistic uh, order of things uh, by any means, but our country was founded to serve, you know, of the people, by the people, and for the people, not to serve any kind of Pope or any uh, any uh, religious purpose. So this is one of the reasons why people like David Barton, the movements, you know, one of the key myth makers of the Christian nationalist movement, who was very politically influential, has become so important. His sort of, I would say, frankly, fake reading of history is pseudo history has been debunked over and over and over by academic historians, but it's done nothing to slow his career, um, because, um, simply because it's not true, the movement leaders know that they need to sort of in order to sort of take this country in a completely radical direction, they need to you know, sideline accurate history. And so they need... I mean, that's...
0: Yeah, it's creating a... It's creating a a myth that you can just... I mean, not in the good sense, but just in the sense of, like, oh, you know, let's put together some words and say this is how it went down. And and not... Just ignoring, actually, like that's one of the things that they got right, you know, uh, you know, we, there's plenty they got wrong, but they got this right. And, and the idea also there were many non-believers at the founding of our country. It wasn't like, just like, it wasn't just all these like, you know, pilgrims or whatever, you know, uh, and, and there so were it's some just
1: very religious people as well. But what they yeah. did is they very self-consciously created uh, a religion with uh, a separation uh, of religion and government. and never this was never applied uh, perfectly, of course. And our country has gone through a lot of different shifts. We've had different uh, religious movements arise, like the Great Awakenings, and we've had other religious movements arise, like the social gospel. We've always had um but but the separation of church and state is, um, you know, it's not just a for atheists. It served our country. Very well, and our religious movements very well since our founding. The reason we have such a sort of vibrant and diverse religious landscape is precisely because we've had a separation of church and state.
0: Exactly. I mean, you know, this is this is like the so it's just really important. So we have that founding, and yet here we have this throughout it. There have, my guess, and this is where I actually, as as a historian, correct me. There have been movements. That, that may not have called themselves Christian nationalists, but, but felt empowered by that idea. I mean, certainly the Ku Klux Klan did. Um, you know, they felt like they were owning this country in a certain way. There are probably other examples. I mean, this is, where does Christian nationalism 2023 fit into the trajectory of this kind of impulse uh, of the, theocracy or power grab in the name of religion?
1: Well, what's really interesting is when you're talking about groups like um, the, you know, sort of white nationalist groups, or the uh, groups like the—I think about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and some of those militia movements. For some of them, were not particularly religious for a long time, but they have adopted the language of Christian nationalism. Um, in recent years, I'm thinking about the Proud Boys specifically here because it's become very useful to them. It's a way of sort of getting everybody giving the kind of ideological um, bolstering for for their activity. Uh, and others are very uh, have adopted the sort of language and, and and framework of Christian nationalism because it sort of conforms to their anti-government. That it conforms to their mm. kind of anti-government uh, attitude.
0: Yeah. Where, where does Christian nationalism fit in our conversation today about anti-Semitism? Well, um,
1: well, again, it's about who gets to properly belong in the nation and who doesn't. And if you're not a certain type of uh, Christian, uh, you can be here with, you know, at the largesse of, of the true Americans um but it 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 really is a kind of uh again exclusionary nationalism now that's not to say that there's there there's been you know sometimes you'll hear leaders talk about judeo-christian nation uh which gives in a way a, the appearance of diversity to their movement in the uh, terms uh kind of toleration and when you go to a lot of the conferences often they'll talk about the importance of israel which of course in in some uh Among some of them, plays the state of Israel plays a really important role in their sort of idea of the end times. So it's complicated.
0: Yeah, it's it's complicated. But
1: then you hear a lot of threats, like you've got to be the right kind of Jews. You better be, uh, you know, one who supports us rather than you. Better watch out. I mean, it's there's a sort uh, of a threat built into some of that. Oh my
0: God! I mean, even Donald Trump. Did this like you, you know, you have to make sure you're appreciative of what I did and be the right kind of Jew. And I mean, it's just I And that I think it is very much in this Christian nationalist. Um, it,
1: it, it's p- sort of the same way uh, in, in some ways about the issue of uh, ethnicity, like the movement it, it does a lot of outreach to conservative leaning pastors of color and. Uh, because they know that if you get the pastors, you can get some subsection of their congregants to vote for you. So they draw a lot of their uh, like Black pastors and especially Latino pastors into these networks like Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Winds or uh, Ministros Hispanos, which is a, a, a of South Florida, network of Hispanic um, and Latino um, pastors, many of whom are actually Pentecostal or charismatic and more conservative leaning, and they work with them and, you know, try and deliver to them tools to show them the biblical issues that should matter in election cycles. And here's how to communicate that to your congregants. But it's not to say that there isn't a lot of sort of racism embedded in the movement. There's certainly gonna make room for a pastor of color or a person of color if they are sort of conform to a particular type of, let's say political agenda. And they do, you know, they really want to, to draw, uh, they want to expand their, their membership. They know that they're losing this sort of older white folk who have formed their base for a long time. And and we've seen the consequences in the last election. So between 2016 and 2020, uh the Latino vote overall shifted, I believe it's eight points in favor of Trump. And part of that has to do with outreach to um, Latino pastors, uh, the establishment of right-wing Latino focused radio, um, and other types of initiatives. When I was I did a piece uh, not too long ago about the shifting Latino vote, and I was following some Facebook pages that target, you know, Latino populations in different states. And there's the infusion of sort of right-wing religious rhetoric and even into some of these Facebook pages where people are going to find and their Spanish language pages and they're going there to find you know work or community um, events or things like that and all of a sudden you see a post that's all about how abortion is you know demonic and things like that so there's just been a very kind of aggressive outreach in these different ways.
0: So so what are you focused on now? Like, what what are you what are you researching now? What projects do you have in the fire? Oh,
1: so many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so Let's many, many hear projects,
1: them. so many articles uh, that I'm working on. I'm working on a new book. You know, my first book, uh, The Good News Club, was published in 2012. It was focused on the religious rights attack on public education, and we're really seeing that with Desantis. A lot of the activity stripping. Um, public school libraries of books, for instance. This type of act fosters mistrust in public education. That really works with the movement's longstanding goal of um, weakening public education and diverting a lot of the public money to private religious schools, some of which can teach, you know, whatever, contempt toward people of other faiths, uh, anti-gay stuff or anti-abortion stuff, Um, and, and so it, it conforms to that, you know, they want to weaken public schools, divert public money um, to uh, private religious schools and also charter schools run by people with very strong ideological agendas, such as the Barney Charter Network, okay. which is a, a Hillsdale College initiative. Um, so anyway... That said, let's go back to your question. I apologize.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that book because I that is a a really important book. Uh, I mean, it came out of your personal experience of like seeing this in the public in school kids, that your kids were school. in, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so my 2012 book was focused on public education. The Power Worshipers was focused on the broader political movement. I am working on a new book. I think it's really important to note that this movement long preceded Trump and it will long outlast him. So a lot of people think that when Trump goes away, this problem is gonna go away and we can all breathe easy, but that's just not the case. Um, He did sort of um, give rocket fuel to this movement. he normalized uh, bad faith arguments. He normalized a certain kind of performative cruelty in our politics, mm. and we're still seeing that. He normalized a kind of conspiracism, and we're seeing the consequences of that. He, um, you know, he. But but those things are now going to outlast him. I mean, if you look at the shenanigans with Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Green, and you know now DeSantis is stuff that he's doing in Florida, we can see that this is absolutely gonna be a, a challenge uh, in our politics going forward. The conspiracism, which seems to be, um, have taken root in ways that um, are difficult to control. And it's deeply concerning. Have you ever been to a Reawaken America uh, tour?
0: No, but I've it's been amazing. following it there. Oh my yeah, God. It, it,
1: you yeah. walk into those things and it is like a, a conspiracism Festival. You've got the great placement guy over here, and and you got the ivermectin lady over there, and you got the you know QAnon people over there. But the one, you know, the, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have gone to these events. You know, I've been to a couple of them, and each one was attended by perhaps two or three thousand people. And the one overarching conspiracy that they all are absolutely one hundred and fifty percent committed to. Is the lie of the stolen election, and that lie, of the stolen election, was promoted by a lot of Christian nationalist movement leaders who fostered mistrust in our elections. Even groups like the Council for National Policy, which called for their political allies to contest electoral votes in the states that were the um, the focus of you know uh, uh, Republicans' baseless claims. Even when things had been already debunked, people like um, you know initiatives like Faith Wins and Chad Connolly were going around promoting the lie of shenanigans to religious uh, to to pastors in, at hundreds of events in and um, in in states all across the
0: country. Um, so yeah. that meant- I mean. It- yeah. It is, uh, it, it, of course, it only it only happened in states where Trump lost, which is a, quite a coincidence, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and uh, and also not to the Senate races that Trump that happen to have been won by Republicans, but only the ones where the Democrats won. You it, it's really, uh, um, it is it. it and that's part of the reason it's so important to name this that's the reason you know one of the reasons also is the vote suppression but it's an anti-democratic movement it, it, ultimately the, you know i think making that connection is, so is that kind of something that you're working on with your your new project that we are we, we will we will be eagerly but not impatient because i have learned that impatience does not help bring projects into fruition. Uh, but, but we are, we are eager, uh, for, for all of your work. And I, what can I say, Catherine, you have just been so important in this moment for us to learn and to grow in our understanding of what's happening. It's hard work. You're putting yourself in places that are uncomfortable and you're, you're able to synthesize things in a way that are understandable. Katherine Stewart is the best selling author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Her writing appears in the New York Times, The New Republic, and many other places. Thank you again for joining us here on State of Belief, and thank you for all the work that you are doing.
1: And thank you so much for the work you do. Glad to be in this rabbit hole with you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Up next, Diana Butler Bass on true freedom, community, and much more. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. One of the things that makes Dr. Diana Butler-Bass so exciting to read and to talk with is her refusal to bring preconceived ideas to her scholarship. The author of such books as Christianity After Religion, Diana has also explored mysticism, gratitude, and healing faith communities. And she also writes with powerful clarity on the current events deeply affected by religion. As we see many of the ways faith is being misused in our politics and culture right now, it's great to have Diana back on State of Belief Radio to tell us how to use it right. Thanks for being here today.
2: Oh, Paul, it is just so great to be with you. I don't know how long we've been actually sort of plotting this sort of goodness
0: in the world. We've been plotting goodness in the world. For, I, it's 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 got to be like 20 years. I mean, so, so you know, we... This is so great to be reconnected. I feel like I, I watch you so much on social media and, and and get a sense that you have a new substack that is ex- excellent. What is that called? Let's just start there because I, I want people to get as excited about this conversation as I already am. What's going on with your substack? And I know that sounds like a crazy intro, but with you, it's actually a really good question.
2: Well, I have actually loved it. I write a Substack newsletter called The Cottage. And it grew out of the pandemic and my need to connect with my audience. And, you know, for years I had maintained a you know regular author kind of newsletter. It was through another another platform. And what I had always thought of as a newsletter was simply a way of me informing my readers what I was working on or where I was going to be speaking is pretty nuts and bolts stuff. Um, But when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden one of my major streams of income, of course, dried up because authors write books and we do speaking engagements. And so there were no speaking engagements. I had a book release, but there was no book tour. I was just locked in my office and I wasn't entirely sure how as a freelancer, I was gonna make a living. And a friend of mine came to me and said, have you seen this new platform, Substack? Um, They allow uh, writers to connect with their readers. And it's not just about information, it's about creating community. And so I I checked it out and I got pretty excited about it. And and so I began this, this project of writing a newsletter. And it isn't just what I'm doing, but instead it's really become an invitation into conversation with uh, my readers and people who like my work. And in the last two years, I I can't even believe it. The free list of subscribers has grown from 5,000 people who were on the original newsletter list to 33,000.
0: That's wild. Congratulations. It is, you know, isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's, it's so important. And this is not only is it important, because I'm glad that hopefully you are able to sustain your work, but also because we need community, and we need people being introduced to good ideas about religion that are life-giving that are community focused that are you know that 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 shed more light rather than a a narrow constricted understanding of religion which has always been what you've offered uh to american uh religion so that's exciting i have one question is that cottage a real place or is it like a fantasy in my head that is like where i want to live of all my life
2: it's it's a real place as a matter of fact i've I'm sitting in it right
0: now. And oh so- my <laughs> god. Okay, you are living the dream. It's a, you have to go there, but you know, the cottage uh, Diana Butler Bass, you'll find it and it it is like the most idyllic sort of, you know, little shutters and all of this. It's you know, looks very nice. So, congratulations on all of that. Now, now we we've we've talked about the vehicle, but what is consuming you right now? I have like 50 things on my list, but, but what is like at the front of your list?
2: Well, there are two things, really. And these are, we talked about the mechanics of the of the cottage and the how, how many people seem to be hungry for great uh, words and good ideas where they can discuss religion differently with their friends and family. So I think that that's why so many people came to the cottage. But what I'm focusing on there are the two things that are really driving me right now. And that is on the weekend, I just take whatever is the gospel reading in the revised common lectionary, that standard set of readings through Protestant and Catholic churches. And I muse on it. I give a reflection on it. And it's always very unexpected. And it's not like anything you've ever heard in church before. So I really love that. I, I have grown to love the Bible more. In this weird age of deconstruction and people leaving Christianity, I think I love the Bible more than I ever have before.
0: Um, I really like what you're doing there. What? Well, you, you mentioned two things: the, the, the cottage. What was another? You know, what was another um, area that you're really focused on?
2: Well, so so that one is obviously the really optimistic, hopeful. And fun Diana project, rereading the Bible and doing that in and for our community. (laughs) But it really relates to what happens midweek at the cottage. And that is sort of the kind of classic work that I've been doing over the years. And that taking uh, stories about religion that are in culture, in the news, particularly around politics, and doing some very unusual kinds of theological analysis of them. So I have written quite a bit in uh, recent months on Christian nationalism, on MAGA, Trumpism, gotten myself into the usual kind of trouble I get myself into. Uh, my my biggest political piece of the year was uh, an analysis of Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia's um, religious background and opinions, which was stuff that nobody else was doing in advance of his election and I wound up doing kind of a deep dive on that and people are always calling me up and saying can you explain a little bit more about what Youngkin's point of view is and sort of how even these kind of supposed moderates like Youngkin are really using religion in in ways that are, are frankly dangerous. And so, and, and then I write as well about religious decline and trends in religion. So that all happens in midweek. And I feel like it's really important to keep both of those things in conversation. Like you were just saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, you know, the, uh, as, as the leader of interfaith Alliance right now, or the, you know, the, I, I'm the first to say the positive power of religion. I mean, over the history of this country that, you know, that wonderful things have happened when people of all faiths uh, 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 come together and make and say we actually have to do better than we've done and have a vision for what can be. And then they work together to change policy, to make, you know, to make the world better, more equitable, m- more dignity to people. And um, and so I like people, you know, people are like, oh, you hate religion. It's the opposite. I love religion too much to see it be, be used in, in negative ways and, um, and used to divide and used to, you know, demean and used to Create narrowness in our in our culture about what is possible and who belongs and all of those kind of things. So you know, I just think it's really um, it's really important to hold those two things in tension, recognizing like so when we talk about religious freedom, religious freedom for what, for who, you know, what do you want to be free to do, um, you know, because the history of our country is littered with people doing terrible things in the name of religion and feeling sanctified doing it. And yet, so that's the, you know, so keeping these things, you know, I I think that, you know, one of the, one of the places that is, you know, grabbing headlines and just because it feels so dynamic in its decline is Florida. And you wrote a really interesting piece um, on the cottage on, on freedom And what freedom really is supposed to mean? And I just would love for you to like, you know, expound upon that a little bit because it was it was such a good example of the way you you work.
2: Well, one you you can't help but notice that one of the big political issues sort of pressing uh, the what we used to call the religious right, but is now more or less being referred to as white Christian nationalism. Um, there's kind of a sloppiness and overlap of those terms, but I think that it, it, some of it is fair. So, so one of the things I can't help but notice is that white evangelicals are using religious freedom as a political wedge issue. And they're arguing that their freedoms are being eroded. And so DeSantis, interestingly enough, in Florida, has taken this up. He himself is is uh, Catholic, and I think he's doing an incredible amount of dog whistles to the very uh, tradition, deep traditionalist, theocratic um, parts of conservative Catholicism. But he's also borrowing incredible amount of language and issue concern from white evangelicals and from, interestingly enough, Hispanic evangelicals. So freedom becomes a central point for their political platform. But what I pointed out in my... Um, Essay was that their idea of what they're calling freedom runs contrary to some of the basic theological teachings of, of particularly Protestantism um, in relationship to freedom. And so I went back to the very first ever Protestant theological tract uh, written on freedom by Martin Luther. In the early uh, 1500s, I think it was 1520 or 1521, um, that piece was written, and it's called The Freedom of a Christian Person. And in that, that tract, which becomes central uh, to the Protestant Reformation, Luther lays out two propositions which seem to at first conflict, but they're really a paradoxical tension. Uh, one is that, as he says at the very beginning, a Christian is a perfectly free lord of all. That is, a Christian can do whatever they want, um, and then the second proposition is uh, a Christian is a complete servant to all. And so that that's those are the parameters theologically of Christian freedom that Protestantism has struggled with for five hundred years. This idea that that there is total freedom in God, especially for Christians, total freedom in Christ. Um, Yet, that total freedom has the limit of the love of neighbor. Mm. And how do you put those two things together? And so that's what Luther's tract was about. And so what I wrote is that what is happening with uh, white Christian nationalism with DeSantis and with this use of freedom as a political wedge issue is that they only take the first part of the proposition. They only take Mm. the idea of I have Mm. total freedom white Christians, Christians should have total freedom. And they forget that that has to be in complete tension and paradox with the second part of what Luther constructed. And that is, we are bound to one another in community. And that love becomes the guardrail to uh, total individual freedom. So I wrote Mm. about that. And, you know, I hadn't seen anybody really talking about that. Basically, I said that DeSantis was a bad Christian. At <laughs> least, at least, at least a, at least a bad theologian, uh, yeah. and because that that whole yeah. Luther idea becomes an idea that goes into Western intellectual history. You know, the founders of the American Republic had they knew that tract. Everyone who was an educated man, uh-huh. European in this the 18th century, knew what Luther had said about freedom and people like Locke and others who were great theorists in the century of the revolution, they played with it. They were trying to understand it in a new political setting. And so the founders knew that tension in that, pro- those propositions of Lutheranism when they were constructing the constitution yeah. and the bill but, of rights.
0: I think that's so interesting and it's so helpful. It's, it's almost like a, it, it, it is a reminder of kind of what it means to be in a democ free in a democracy, which is you're you're free, but you're not alone. And and soon, you know, I mean, with this current Supreme Court, which seems like it will be uh, weighed in a certain way for the foreseeable future, we're going to be in a situation where people are going to be able to do a lot of things, and people are going to be able to be to to refuse service to gay people just because they can um, and I think part of what you know I, I almost give do I almost allow that to be a given at this point you know given where the Supreme Court is and I I say that as someone who revered the Supreme Court growing up and like for you know for personal reasons and family reasons and and really felt like it was a safeguard but I I, I don't view that anymore the but the 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 question going forward is, just because you can doesn't mean you should you you have done so much work on going to the roots i mean you've already like already numeral numerous times in this conversation you go to the root of something like the radical part of it uh the root part of it where are we like I just am not gonna ask you like where are we in a in in what looks like a trajectory of america like what like what what are what are, what are we what are we doing right now in, in as someone who's looked at a history of, a, of faith and also in that looking at history of faith, you're also often forecast. And so I'm just wondering if you might just opine. I'm not going to hold you to it because, you know, we don't know. But like, what? where are we? Like, What is going on with religion in America, according to Diana Butler Bass right now?
2: <laughs> well, um, I have to confess that I'm really... Uh, quite worried and um 20 years ago it was probably about the same time we met I wrote a column for Sojourner's blog which was then called God's Politics I I've got to go back and and pull this that column out but everybody back then was talking about oh, how, you know, if we could just swing so much of the evangelical vote toward more progressive causes, everything would be okay. And um, there, so there was this real talk about evangelicals and politics. And I was always really worried about that. And I wrote a piece for Sojourners, I'm surprised they published it, um, that the evangelicalization of politics would not lead toward new progressive sort of uh, religion, practices of religion politics. I thought the evangelicalization of politics would lead towards atheism Um, because all I could see was how strong, robust, and compelling the religious right was and I thought whatever these few people do and the evangelical left it's not really going to have a terribly huge effect and instead what's going to happen is that all of this religious right stuff is going to create an entire generation of young Americans who are growing up in evangelical churches who think that Christianity is right-wing evangelicalism and think that in order to be a Christian you have to be a conservative republican. Um, And that that would wind up being dangerous. And that all of the people who were being exposed to that, those views, a good proportion of them would probably leave religion altogether. And so I remember when I wrote that, and there were people at Sojourners who actually laughed at that piece. Although I have to confess, Jim Wallace liked it and was willing to engage me on it. He, he 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 was interested in what I was seeing there. But that's basically what's happened in the last 20 years. So what we have right now, I think, is an entire generation of people who have been inoculated against specifically Christianity and religion more generally by having grown up in these evangelical churches some 20 and 30 years ago that were had become sort of full on uh outposts for white Christian nationalism that we were then just referring to as the religious right. So that that meant it would cause a precipitous it would it would continue to add to the precipitous decline in the mainline because people who grew up within that evangelicalism, they never thought that liberal Protestants, mainline Protestants, were even Christians. Um, they were taught from the young their youngest Memories. Never, 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 never walk in the door of a UCC or Lutheran or Episcopal or Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterian church, because that's where the devil lives. Those people are terrible. They're all heretics. And so there was no there was no sort of outflow place for that whole generation of people. They couldn't just sort of leave church and walk down the street to the nice Methodist church. Um, and and so they just bypassed all of those churches and now are basically sort of none of the above, kind of free-floating Christians, I follow Jesus, or or nothing at all. And, and people can make those choices. That is really fine. Uh, I appreciate a lot of the honesty and religious choice that people are making right now. But what it means is something that is so significant for our culture. And this is where Diana is worried. Is those churches that those those that whole generation of really hurt wounded people, the, all those people who had been basically poisoned uh by evangel toxic evangelical religion, all the churches they bypassed on their way to something else are now failing. And those churches are churches that held an enormous amount of what I would call balanced social capital in American religion and politics. Those were churches that basically Ran soup kitchens. Those are churches that taught people about Luther's theology of freedom of a Christian. Those were churches where Republicans and Democrats could disagree on things, but they got together and they worked toward common good. They believed in something called common good. And with those people in those kinds of churches and your basic sort of local Catholic parishes, those kinds of churches formed a a sort of social background that became part of American political practice. And so now that that is gone, I think that 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 the loss of that has led to two very dangerous things one is people have now replaced those kinds of religious communities with identifying only with a partisan political community and so the loss of these communities where there was some possibility of people working together has exacerbated division it's made it worse Um, And then the other thing is, is that since those churches are declining, their budgets are going down, and they have less in terms of actual physical resources to take care of the physical and financial needs of all of the groups of people that they used to serve. And so while we have the crisis of economic inequality and the crisis of climate change and what that is doing um, to the middle class working class and the poorest people among us Um, and those social nets are all being taken away by the government Uh, what that's doing to the that social class is that churches who are being who, who everybody says oh don't worry the government shouldn't do it uh nonprofits should do it, but those churches and and religious institutions were the main nonprofits that were doing it, and mm. now, without people, they don't have the money to do it
0: yeah. so that's i mean I think that religion
2: yeah. going away ultimately is a bad thing for politics and sort of the social equity around economics
0: yeah that is that's really interesting i you know i I remember uh preaching at the commencement, at uh, Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. And, and it just as a, something came out, just like the decline of churches, all churches and, but, but including, um, including, you know, the evangelical church and just lamenting that I honestly, I don't Like, not everybody has to be a Christian. That is not my goal at all. And I know you're not saying that either. But what I do lament is that people leaving the faith because they think that Jesus is anti-gay, you know, like that is a lament that I can, that we weren't, we haven't been as loud as we could have. I do think that there is hope, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a little less like, you know, I'm, I'm a little less convinced that some of this vibe, there is a vibrancy that I see you know, out there and, 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 uh, I get excited by it. And, you know, I know you meet a lot of these people and, and you're kind of like, Oh, wow, that is awesome. But the reality of what you're saying is true is that there is a, a hollowing out of a really important civic, um, network. And, and, you know, that, that isn't easily replaced by a a non-for-profit or by the government. Um, and, and you know, part of what I hope to do with Interfaith Alliance is like to really figure out ways to um, be part of a conversation about what you're about about how important these locations are. Because at the same time that that these that there is a loss of capital there, there's a, there there's a concerted effort among some to reduce public institutions libraries things like things that used to be like the 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 mainstays of an or, of a, of a community are also getting hollowed out so if there is a kind of a more conservative sort of January 6th attack on democracy we won't have a network in place so part of the goal uh, for Interfaith Alliance is to actually find ways to build ties and 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 communities within the community wouldn't it be something
2: <laughs> Paul, I just I literally just thought about this when you said it. Wouldn't it be something if all those old like church libraries, I mean, every one of these old churches that are still around all have old libraries, mostly with a lot of moldy books from the 1950s. But what if instead of those old books people went ahead and filled them with all the banned books?
0: Oh my God, that is such a good uh, idea. That is such a good idea. Okay, people you have gotten your 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 expert tip from Diana Butler Bass on how to fill your sanctuary It is. It is. uh, Read a band book week at First Baptist of wherever. You know. I mean, like, come on. Like, really. Knowledge cannot. You know. Knowledge is not going to hurt us. This is, and especially knowledge about increasing the humanity of our neighbors. Uh, And uh, and so, that is a great idea. That is just one example of the things you are going to gain when you become part of Diana Butler Bass's (laughs) Substack, The Cottage, and also. So do you, you're always, I mean, you, you're the author of like a bazillion books. I think that's the number. Maybe it's a little <laughs> more than that. Um, but but is do you have a book project in mind as well? Or are you working on anything that you're really excited that you want to share with us?
2: Yeah, I'm working on two history projects right now. Uh, one is a sort of a little handbook that's not unlike uh, Timothy Snyder's little book, On Tyranny. And it's mm, a little mm. tiny guidebook on history as a spiritual practice, and you know, how you engage practice history and why we must engage it. And it's just little brief sort of essays. And then the other uh, book that I'm working on is a, really a project about civil religion. And um, I make the point that we we're living in an age of iconoclasm. Uh, where and for people who don't know that big, the big theological word it means ripping statues down, and uh, Christianity has a lot of times in its history when it's been through iconoclastic periods when they go th- when people go through and rip statues down, and one of the things I think is really fascinating about human beings is that even once we rip statues down, we never leave our altars empty. We always go eventually and put something new up. And so then the new book is tentatively called Empty Altars. And it's a look at what are we going to do now that we have empty altars, basically, in every American city? Do we just drive over top of them? Do we just plant flowers where they used to be? Um, What will go up in their place? And how do we create a sort of pantheon of icons, heroes and saints uh, for the kind of America we want to be? So that's Mm. the question. I just was really interested in exploring that. And um, it was inspired in part because I live in Virginia. And if you um, drive down Monument Avenue in Richmond, which used to be the basically the public altar space. to the Confederacy, gigantic statue after gigantic statue after gigantic statue down miles of Monument Avenue, all celebrating slavery and, and white supremacy. And now if you look down that street, it's a friend of mine who is a Baptist pastor in Richmond. So congratulations, he's in your tradition, liberal Baptist. Um, he He said to me recently, Gosh, every time I look down Monument Avenue, all I see are all those empty altars. And as mm. soon as he said it, I went, mm. "Oh my gosh, that's a great title for a book." And mm. so, that's really sparked my theological and historical imagination. Yeah.
0: And also, like the creativity and the imagination that is, you know, kind of at the root of of religion in in good ways is like, what can we. What can we dig deep and imagine going there? Like, what can we, you know, like, and and the riches calling upon the richness of our all of the traditions that are present in our country, and um, you know, reminders of the the grave uh, sins of our past, alongside the the possibilities of. You know the brilliant future, and I just think that that is a—that's a wonder. You know, if an altar is meant to call us uh, together. Um, that is a wonderful idea. And that's going to be a fabulous book. We will have you on many times before then, but I love both of those projects. Diana Butler-Bass is a public theologian, popular speaker, and award-winning author. Her most recent book is Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Diana, thank you for being with us on State of Belief Radio.
2: I'm just really thrilled to be here. And congratulations, Paul. I look forward to how this program grows and and develops under your
0: leadership. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member of Interfaith Alliance today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week when I talk to Rabbi Sandra Lawson. I cannot wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.